Good morning, everybody. What a beautiful Sunday it is. What a great singing service that we've had. Thankful for all of you being here, lifting up your voices to praise our King. Uh, I don't know if we've mentioned VBS yet this morning. I wanted to say something about it. So <laughs> I had planned on, and Sean gets up there, and Bill's there. We're all talking about it. Because it's, it's worth talking about. I don't know if you heard this. It was a record-breaking vacation Bible school. And you know, whenever preachers talk about numbers, it's become a thing where we feel this compulsion to quickly temper that by saying, oh, it's not about the numbers. Let me tell you, it is very much about the numbers, okay? Because when you have 400 people plus, two nights in a row, and then almost that for the whole VBS anyway, when you have that many people, that is that many number of people who are hearing about Jesus, singing praises to Jesus, encouraging each other to live a Christian life for Jesus. That it is absolutely about, about the numbers. If we only had 40, 44, 45, and we could, we could say, well, you know, those that we had, they got something out of it, and we really gave it our all, and they walked away feeling great, that'd still be great. So that part doesn't matter. But when you can say, we, last year, last year, our goal was to have 300 people here. That was what we were shooting for. And we opened VBS night one with 347 or something like that. We blew it out of the water. And so we had to set a new goal for 350 and we blew that out of the water. And we set a goal for four and blew that out of the water. So it absolutely is about the numbers because it shows the numbers of people who care about Christ and who want to be here to hear about Him is climbing and growing. You know, I looked at the numbers last year for our Vacation Bible School. And on night one, because I, I, I wrote a, a bulletin article or a devotional, something like that, about night one, and I said last year about night one of last year, I said, first night we blew past the goal that we had set for ourselves a year ago. In other words, two years in a row, our first night exceeded what our goal was the year before. And this year did the same as last year, but with even bigger numbers. That is growth. That is what growth looks like. Yes, it is important to grow spiritually, and I hope you are. It's important to grow mentally and emotionally and in and, and your connection to Christ. I hope you do. But the more people who hear the gospel, the better. The more, the merrier. So yes, let's not kid ourselves. It is absolutely about the numbers. We had 419 numbers of people here. That's wonderful. That's great. Let's set a goal next year for 500 people. Let's set it right now so that we'll start night one with like 540 or something. Because that seems to be how we do things. All right? And then we'll blow that past that goal and we'll end up or something like six, 700 people. All right? Let's just do that. Let's just have so many people here for VBS, we have to start knocking down walls to figure out where we're going to put everybody. I want the fire department to try to shut our VBS down. That's my goal. Okay? <laughs> and I want to be able to kick them out and just... All right. All that being said, I have a sermon for you this morning that I'm going to give you the title first, but it's not just the title. Usually the way these things go is you get the title, which itself is kind of the here's what the sermon is about statement in a little pithy, short little point. And then after you get your title, then usually what happens is the preacher gives you three or four points to explain that title. You know, here, you are this and here's three reasons why. All right, that is not what we're going to do this morning. Instead, I'm going to give you the title and then I'm going to back you up. And I'm going to walk you through the thought process to lead you to the conclusion of that title. I want all of you to agree with me when I state the title. But you may not at first. Hopefully in 30 or so minutes, we can all agree that you are meant for heaven and not for hell. That's the title. It sounds like a good thing. We all want to believe that. But have you looked around lately? Have you, have you noticed your fellow man lately? There's a lot of hatred in this world of ours. There's a lot of evil. 
a lot of wickedness, a lot of ungodliness, a lot of murder, a lot of sin of all sorts. And so it's, if you approach it from that position, from that cynical position, from that pessimistic position, it'd be very easy to say, well, not all of us are meant for heaven. That person doesn't look like he's meant for heaven. That person seems like he's meant for hell. But I would argue that every single person who ever has lived, does live, or will live, no matter how good you may esteem them to be or how bad you may think them to be, every person is meant for heaven, not for hell. They may not all end up in one place. They may, many of them, end up in another place. But all of us are meant for the one, not for the other. So I want to state that kind of as a thesis statement. And then I want to give you the Bible's magic number of seven. I want to give you seven simple statements. Each one of these doesn't reinforce the point, it builds you to the conclusion where you will hopefully at the end of this say, therefore, we are meant for heaven, not for hell. Point number one, simple statement number one, we are made in the image of God. Now that's a thing that's been talked about a lot this year considering our theme. I know I've brought it up a few times in sermons and I've focused on what I think Moses means when he writes that, quoting God in Genesis 1. I don't want to rehash that, I want to focus on it from a different perspective, but let's Let's take the verse that we have where that statement is found. Genesis 1.27. So God created man, what does he say? In his own image. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He created them. There in the beginning, God made man. After he had already made the stars, and after he had already made this world itself, and the mountains, and the rivers, and the, the uh, animals that populate this world, and all of the grass, and everything that you can find. After he made all that, then he said, now let us make us, he says, speaking within his multifaceted nature now let us make something else he never said now let us make a dog he never said now let us make a nebula but when he's coming to make man he says before he makes it let us make man because this is going to be different this creation is going to be unique let us make man in our image let us make man after our likeness the word man there, there's two words in the Hebrew for man. Just like in the English, we use the one word man in two different ways. If you say a person is a male, they are a man. Or you could talk about humanity, all of mankind, or all men are like this, and man is like that. But there's two words for that in the Hebrew. There's ish, which is humanity, mankind, all of us. But then there is this word that means the man. And that is Adam, where Adam gets his name. Adam, Adam. It is the man. Moses says, in the beginning, God said, now let us make the man. Let us make this man. And then he would make this woman in his image after his likeness. And they would produce humanity. They would procreate and they would create the whole world to populate the earth of people. Now, when we look at the world and we see the whole population of people, we see mankind, we see humanity, and what do we say? Humanity is wicked. Humanity is vile. Humanity is ungodly. Humanity is, is apathetic towards spiritual things. Humanity is as unholy as it could be, and it's getting unholier every day. All of those statements, cynical though they are, we have to say are true. At least generally speaking, humanity is largely evil. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those things lead to destruction. They are not of God. The world is wicked. The world is evil. God loved the world, the Bible says. And he states it as if it's this remarkable thing to imply it's not that loving. It's not that lovable. And yet God loved the world. Humanity, wicked. But in the beginning it was not so. Because in the beginning God did not make humanity. 
God made a man, not people. God made Adam and Eve, not all of the world. Adam and Eve procreated and produced and created through their offspring all of the world, which all turned to sin. But in the beginning, man was made. The man was made. And the woman was made in the image of God. Man was made in the image. That word could be translated, and it may be in your Bible, the resemblance of God. In other words, again, unlike a dog or a duck or a turkey or a star or a tree or a daffodil, there was something about man that God says, I want to see myself in this one. God does not see himself in a giant star. God does not see himself in a creepy crawly ant. But when God saw Adam and Eve, his first ones in the beginning, he saw something of himself there, a resemblance of himself. There's a lot of ways you can interpret, a lot of ways you could talk and speculate about what the image of God is. Let's just zero in on this one simple thing. In the beginning, man was sinless, man was holy, man was pure. And in that way, we resembled a sinless, holy and pure God. In the beginning, the world was not bad. In the beginning, the world was, in fact, to quote God, very good. But the beginning didn't last, did it? Simple statement number one. Man was made in the image of God. Pure, holy, sinless. Simple statement two. Sin, and I'm writing this in the present active tense, sin defiles our original purity. But let's just keep our minds in the past tense. In the beginning, God made the man, and he was sinless and holy and pure and the woman sinless holy and pure and then the serpent came and was subtle and deceptive and led them astray and as a result of their choosing to sin man and woman became sinful unholy impure defiled sin defiled their original purity and that same process of you start out one way then sin comes along and you become something else that process has continued all throughout history and will continue until the end comes. Sin, that's what it does. It defiles our original purity. Best way to summarize that is to go to one of the most complicated chapters in the New Testament, but just to take a snippet of it, look at Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. I don't want to unpack all of this because that's the whole, we could make a whole sermon out of it. So I just want to hit the highlight of this as it relates to this central point. How does sin defile our original purity? What is it that sin does? How does sin work? How does the devil really behind the scenes use sin and the temptation to sin to defile our original purity? So listen to how Paul uses an illustration of the commandment thou shalt not covet or thou shalt not lust and how the receiving of that commandment, when you finally receive it, if you're an Old Testament Jew, it's too late because you've already done it. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Are the commandments of God a bad thing? Because I hear the commandments and I realize I've already broken like 75 of these commandments, so that must be a bad thing. Quit telling me all these bad things. God forbid the law is not sin. You would not have known what sin was except for the law. Because you would not have known it was wrong to lust or to covet except the law said thou shalt not. The problem is that sin, the devil operating with sin, takes occasion, the old Bible says. The devil takes advantage of the fact that you don't know you did wrong until you're given the commandment and it's too late by then. It takes advantage of that to get you to sin before you even realize what the commandment says. It takes occasion by the commandment and it deceives you and it slays you. It kills you spiritually. So that by the time you read the law and you says, oh, God doesn't want me to commit lust. God doesn't want me to commit uh, uh, covetousness but I know I already have, and now guilt springs up. 
And now sin sparks to life within you. Sin, the old Bible says, revives. It sparks to life. And you die. Well, what happened? God gave a command and told you not to do something. And by the time you read it and really grasped the spiritual ramifications of it, in grasping it, you realized you already had done it. Let's use lying, for example. A little child steals a cookie. Happens every day. My son Jack is homesick. Probably stealing one right now, even though he's supposed to be in bed. A child steals a cookie. A little child. Jack's not little anymore. But a little child who doesn't grasp these big things yet steals a cookie. The mama knows because the mama counts the cookies and she sees her. She should because the kids steal them all the time. And you count the cookies. You say, there's 17. There should be 18. Little, little Timmy, did you take a cookie? And Timmy will say, I didn't take a cookie. Well, he's got crumbs all over his mouth. He took a cookie. But Timmy's not a sinner. Timmy is not going to hell as a little five-year-old for stealing a cookie because he's still a child. He's still learning. He will continue to steal cookies. But one day, his God-fearing parent who will have continually taught him, thou shalt not steal, one day that statement will click in his mind and he will come to appreciate that he's not just stealing a cookie because it's cute, that he will actually be taking from another without permission. And he will recognize that is sin. By the time that happens, he will have already done it and sin will spring to life within him. He will realize and recognize his sinful status because he will have done it now to the point where his doing it is in rebellion to God and not just a little child learning the rules. But now he has sinned against the Almighty. He has defiled himself by the devil's temptation and lie. And that's what sin does. It takes your original state when you are pure and you are innocent, you are holy, and it makes you impure, it makes you guilty, it makes you unholy. That's what sin does. You're made in the image of God, but you don't stay that way because sin takes over. Third, simple statement. And because you have sinned, the just and righteous God, the judge of His creation, the judge, jury, and executioner of His creation must punish. You did wrong. You made the scales imbalanced. God likes balanced scales. He's a judge that way. He must rebalance those scales. An action must have a consequence. An action must have a divine reaction. You sinned. There must be punishment. And God will punish, but not happily. God does not want to do this. So notice one of my favorite Old Testament texts, Ezekiel 33, verse 11. An idea that's found kind of peppered throughout the book of Ezekiel as the prophet is exasperatingly trying to warn his people at the very end before they're destroyed by Babylon to repent and turn back to God. And he keeps pleading with them and begging with them as God does. And in the middle of all that, he says, uh, this is God telling Ezekiel what to tell the people. Say unto them, as I live, that's God taking an oath, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now just pause right there for a second because that just presumes the death of the wicked. God opens with, I don't want to destroy the wicked. But that implies he's gonna. It's not a question of will he or won't he. It's him saying, I'm going to destroy the wicked, but I'm not happy about it. It's going to happen. Chalk it up. Take it to the bank. It's guaranteed. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I take pleasure when the wicked turn from their wicked ways and live. And so Ezekiel then pleads, turn ye, turn ye, and live. For why will you die, O house of Israel? What are you doing dying? You don't have to die. You will die. You will be destroyed. God will punish. But before that day comes, you have a thousand and one opportunities to repent and turn around. You can turn and live, and that would make God happy. But if you do not, God will punish and destroy, and that will not make God happy. You are made in God's image. He wants you. He is happy when you are 
reflecting His divine nature, reflecting His holiness, reflecting His purity, His spirituality. But when sin defiles that, then He must course correct. He must punish. But He doesn't want to do that. But just stop for a second and consider the implications behind this. Because God is a fair judge. God needs to be a fair judge. God must balance the scales. I have sinned. Sin has defiled me. God must punish me. And yet God offers me the opportunity to turn and live. How though? It's wonderful that He does. Amen that He does. But how does He even have the right to do that? Because what is right is a just God punishing an unjust sinner. That's what's right, and yet he is offering me the chance to escape that. How does he do that? Fourth simple statement. God invented love as the means for him not to punish you as you deserve. Love, God did not just stumble upon love. God did not find it under the bed. God didn't find it in a box somewhere and think, this is good, I can use this. No, God had a mental problem he had to figure out, to put it in human terms. It wasn't really like that. In other words, he had the same, uh, I have to fix this in my nature aspect of, I need to punish, but I don't want to punish. So how do I reconcile those two things? How do I get someone that deserves punishment not to get punishment? And how he did that was he created a thing. He created a means to not, pu- not to punish someone who deserves punishment. And that thing he created is love. And I don't know if we appreciate that. Because despite how wicked and evil the world is, to quote some hippie somewhere, love is all around us. Love is everywhere. Love can be seen. Love can be felt. And when you see someone being loved, you know it's love because you've seen it so much you have the frame of reference to see that person is loved. And when someone is deprived love, your loving heart and your compassion itself stirs within you and you want to give love to that person because you know how important it is to fill that void that is being deprived them. We know what love is. We see love. Love is all around us. Yes, so is hatred, but there's plenty of love to find. But we found it. It was already here. Where did it come from? Beloved, let us love one another. Because love is, I don't know what your Bible says there, but mine has the preposition of God. And he that loves is born of God and knows God. Born of God, to be born from God, to come from God. Those who love come from God. And John states that as if it's this thing that follows the other or follows the previous. Of course, someone who loves would be born of God. Why, Why of course, John? Because love itself was born from God. Love itself came from God. That word of is the Greek word ek, which means out of. Love came out of God in the beginning, in the original. Before there was love, God made love, created in His mind, and then first produced it for the world. The first time you ever loved somebody, it was probably your mommy or your daddy. And before you even knew what the word meant, you heard them saying it to you. When you're in the womb, you heard them saying it to you. I love you. But that wasn't the first time love ever happened. The first time you told your sweetheart I love you. It was such a sweet little ooey-gooey romantic moment. But that's not the first time. You're not breaking any ground here. That's not the first time love ever happened. The first time love ever happened, it happened in the mind of God. He who was in the beginning, who spoke stars into existence, who spoke nebulas into creation, who formed the world and made the mountains and made the rivers, who made man in His image, that same God who is the Maker God, the Maker made love. He created it out of nothingness, for the sole purpose of giving you something you don't deserve. Because what you deserve is justice. What you deserve is vengeance. What you deserve is punishment for your sins that he knew you would do. But he didn't want to punish you. He wanted to save you. But he can't just not do something that you need. 
So he gave you something else. He created something else he could give you. He could give you love. Thus, 1 John 4.10, here's what love is. Not that you love God. That's love. You do love God. But that's not where love came from. Love didn't start from earth to heaven. Love started in heaven and came to earth. God loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for us. Gave Christ to be the sin offering for us. That's the origins of love. That's the point of love. That's where love came from. It came out of God's desire to save you from your defilement, ruining the image of God in which you were made. Fifth simple statement. Hell. Hell is meant for the devil and his angels. If you go back to Ezekiel, the text we had a minute ago, God says, turn and live. Well, that's great if you do, but not everyone will. Some people will not turn, and so some people will not live. And then what will happen to them? A lot of preachers today don't want to talk about what will happen to them. They try to pretend it doesn't exist, or they'll flat out say that it doesn't, but they're liars. It does exist. Hell does exist. And hell is there for those who do not turn and will not live. But in the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, hell was made. Hell was meant for the devil and his angels. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 25. It's a bit of a reading, so I want to read this one. The critical verse is verse 41, but we're going to start in verse 31. I know it's a text you're familiar with, but indulge me as we read it. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. Oops. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then shall he sit on his throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from the other, like a shepherd divides sheep from goats. And he'll set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. And the king will say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? Because I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to see me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in? When did we see you naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick and in prison and come see you? Verse 40, then the king will answer them, and so much as you've done this to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. No, you never saw Jesus hungry and give him food. Surely you would have. But the thing about it is, you didn't have to see Jesus. You saw just this random person in need. And you took care of that person. And Jesus took that personally. Jesus put himself in the shoes of that person who was in need. And by taking care of him, Jesus took that personally. Verse 41. Then he shall say to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you, the old Bible says, cursed, you, punished, you, the opposite of blessed, into everlasting fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Because I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will say to him, Lord, oh Lord, when did we ever see you hungry? Surely we would have fed you, and I have no doubt they would have. If they had seen the king in all of his glory hungry, they would have said, here, take my food. If they had seen the king naked, they would have said, take the shirt off my back. If they had seen the king sick, they would have said, take my medicine. But they never had the opportunity to see Jesus like that. But they did have a thousand opportunities to see the least of these. And when you did not do those things to the least of these, my brethren, Jesus says, you did not do them to me. You didn't help that person, he says, and I took that personally. You could have helped them, and you did not. So depart from me. Verse 41 again. You cursed. 
You people who have defiled yourself by not doing righteous things, as sin does to us, you've defiled yourself, but you have not turned the way you could have turned to be spared from punishment and to do righteous things. You have not turned, and so you will not live. And said, depart from me to everlasting fire. Depart from me to a place that has been prepared. Prepared for whom? Prepared for them? No. No. Hell is not meant for you. But hell is where you will go in spite of that if you are not righteous if you do not do the things God tells you to do, if you don't take care of the people God tells you to take care of, which is all people, if you're not obedient the way God wants you to be obedient, you will go to the place prepared. Why? Because you are unprepared to go to the other place. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. But hell is not an unprepared place. Hell is also a prepared place. It has been a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Listen, the devil and his angels never had the opportunity to give a glass of cold water to a thirsty man. The devil and his angels never had the opportunity to put clothes on the back of a naked and sick person. The devil and his angels never had the opportunity to do righteousness here in this world. You do. Whose side are you going to be on? On the side of angels or on the side of devils? If you choose the side of devils, if you choose to think for yourself and not take care of other people, then you will live with the devils because you're already mentally with them anyway. And you will go to the place prepared for them. It is a prepared place for an unprepared people. But that's only five. Number six. Because you got heaven and you got hell, but you're not in heaven and you're not in hell. You're here. So is that the magic third option? No. Because this world is passing away. 1 John 2.17. This world is not your home. This world is not your home. And we sing it and we sing it wistfully and we sing it yearningly and we say this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Okay, I hope so. Whether, whether or not you believe it, whether or not you recognize it, this world's not anybody's home. This world is not going to be here forever. This world is going to end, and then you are going to end up in one of two places. A place prepared for you, or a place that is not originally prepared for you. But this place, this place is not your home. The text that was read to us, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine, As we have and the King James says, born, we've worn, we've carried the burden of having a body fit for the earthly life, so shall we in the same way be given a body fit for a heavenly one. You've been given a life that is fit to live here in this world. One day, if you are faithful, one day, if you are righteous, one day, if you are obedient, which is the obvious audience of 1 Corinthians 15, then you will be instead given heavenly. Because, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. And that's what you're going to be if you're righteous. You're going to be incorruptible, undefiled, fading not away. That's the end of this chapter. You're going to be this person who is no longer marred by sin, no longer scarred by iniquity. Why? Because you're going to be in a place where there is no temptation to sin. But right now, you're here. And right now, you're inundated with temptation. You're given every opportunity to sin and to defile that which was made in the image of God. Holy, perfect, and pure. And you can do that. The end hasn't come yet. But if you do that, and you will, you're going to be given time between now and then, and we don't know when then is, to turn and live. And if you do, you're out of this world to a better place. And if you don't, you're out of this world to a much worse place. Either way, this world is not your home. If you stake your flag here, if you put all your chips in this worldly basket, if you put all of your desires on being satisfied by the way this world can satisfy you, this world will satisfy you, and then this world will end and so will the satisfaction. If you put all your mental energy in this world, if you let the problems of this world, not the pleasures, but the problems of this world consume you so that you're only focused on the short term, the here and the now, this world will end, but you will not be prepared 
for when it does. The only way you're going to get out of this world to the place you need to go is if you put all that behind you and you put your eyes on the prize ahead of you and you say, this world is not my home. I'm heading somewhere better. Listen, you're made in the image of God. Sinless, pure, righteous. Then the devil came along and then you sinned and now you're impure, you're unrighteous, you're unholy, you're wicked. God must punish that. But he hasn't punished you yet. Consider yourself blessed with mercy and patience. So repent and turn back to him before it's too late. And if you don't, know where you'll go. And if you do, know where you're given the chance to go. Because you're meant for heaven. You're not meant for hell. Listen, in the beginning, God came down to this world, made a garden, and placed man and woman in that garden. In the beginning, man, thanks to the tree of life, in the beginning, man, thanks to that perfect garden and the sinlessness of his nature at the time, man was free to live in that life forever. If man had not sinned, man would continue to be living in the garden on earth. God would have made this world. It was very good. He made this world for us to live with him here forever. But then sin ruined that. Sin marred that. Sin scarred that. And so now man goes out of the garden and populates the world and fills it up with wickedness and unrighteousness and, and a life that is not fit for you because you are spiritual. You are now a holy person because you're a born-again person. You put that old to death and now you're a new creature. Romans chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3. You're a new person in Christ. So this world is not fit for you. This world can't be your home. Adam and Eve never would have said, this world is not my home. Adam and Eve never would have said, I'm in the world but not of the world. Because the world when Adam and Eve was here was pure. It's not anymore. But you are if you're a Christian. This world isn't. You are. This world can't be your home. Heaven is where you're meant to be now. Adam and Eve was meant to be here. Then they blew it, they blew it here. Now you're meant to be somewhere better. You're meant to be somewhere heavenly. You're meant to be somewhere where there is no temptation. Now, are you going to take advantage of that? Or you can continue to live down here while the clock is ticking and the time's running out? You're in 1 Corinthians 15, just keep reading. Behold, I show you this hitherto unrevealed thing, mystery. Everybody's going to die, but everybody's going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. You will be a new person. If you're a Christian, you will be made new, given a different body, one fit not to live here, but to live there in heaven forever. And if that's not you, then you will just depart to live somewhere else in eternal fire forever. But do not think that's what you need. Do not think that's where you're meant to be. That's where you will go in spite of yourself, but where you can go, where you're meant to go, what you were always meant to have is a life with God. You're meant for heaven. You're not meant for hell. If you go to hell, it's your own fault. If you go to heaven, it's thanks to Christ. So take advantage of what He's done for you to give you the opportunity to be in heaven with Him forevermore. You do that by obeying the gospel. You're living in this world. You're part of this world. Let's just shed that right now. Let's put that to death. Let's start a new life. Put your sins to death. Bury them in a watery grave and rise to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6. You do that when you believe Him, trust and obey Him in baptism and let Him wash away your sins, taking away your defilement, putting you back in His image. Then just be faithful. You're not going to be perfect. Just be faithful. And where you're meant to be will be yours. If you're a Christian but you've stopped being faithful, 
turn, and turn. Why will you die? Turn and repent. Come back to Christ. If we can help you this morning, let us know how right now. Please come as we stand and sing.